Hi, I'm Kelly Forden. I'm here today with Wendy Rawlings. We are going to be talking about her story, Coffins for Kids, which is from her 2019 collection, Time for Bed. Hi, Wendy. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. I am so excited to talk about this story just for, well, for many reasons, but I do want to ask you a little bit about the collection Time for Bed and how this story fits in with the rest of the stories. I think that I began the collection writing about 9-11, which was a long time ago. And I began thinking about my own childhood and childhoods of other people who were raised in the 70s. And I know that some terrible things happened, but they that time seemed more idyllic than this time. And I was watching my nieces and nephews growing up and thinking about what kinds of bedtime stories they might be told by their parents. And then I thought, well, maybe they're not being told stories. Maybe they're asking questions like what happened when that plane hit that building or why do we have metal detectors at school? And so I just began to think about not writing twisted bedtime stories a la Angela Carter, um, but something maybe to me darker, like what if there were really no bedtime stories at all and they were just bedtime nightmares. So that's where a lot of the stories um, came from. So when you came up with the ideas for coffins for kids and part of this um, program is people are supposed to read the story beforehand because we give everything away in the discussion. But um, so so um, can you start by telling us a little bit about how you first had the idea for the story itself, this particular story? I was teaching, I teach an, a, a class sometimes to graduate students, but my favorite um, way of teaching it is to undergraduates. And it's a creative writing course. We have a lot of special topics, creative writing courses at the University of Alabama where I teach. And I was, the students were having trouble thinking about how often comedy arises from the most terrible things. Even though I'd showed them many examples of stories and comedy routines that, you know, were taking on racism, sexism, rape, you know, the worst things that can happen. And so I gave them a challenge one day and said, um, write down the title of a story, like make up the title of a story about something horrible and we'll see if we can make it funny. So my title was Coffins for Kids and I got a kick out of putting an exclamation point just to like drive my point. And I had no, no idea really where I was headed but as a class, we voted to work on a couple and they, they, I didn't want to do mine, but they really pushed me because they thought that that was so bizarre. So we all gave a few a try. And then when I got home, I thought I hadn't really been writing that much and short stories had gotten a little bit, maybe um, stale for me. I just could, I didn't have a lot of energy for short stories. I was writing more creative nonfiction. And this kind of animated me. There, there had been a lot of, you know, any, everything from Sandy Hook then to, I don't, Parkland hadn't happened yet, but there, there had been a real string um, of terrible shootings at schools. So that was sort of where it began. 
Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love the most about it. Like Naomi is such a snarky, um, but I mean, she's extremely funny protagonist. Like she never lets up with her cutting, like eviscerating um, sense of humor. And I thought that was one of the most amazing aspects of the story because, you know, she's so bitter and wry and yet somehow that makes it even more poignant. I think the fact that she's so alive and clearly just like such a great person that I'd love to hang out with and that this terrible thing has happened to her. I guess that she's so infused with life and then she's had this terrible loss. That's an so, interesting observation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the first line, the gunman didn't like redheads, which I think really points out how arbitrary and so like how we're at, at the whim of these people you know who have access to guns who can make these crazy distinctions between people did that come from somewhere in particular or were you just thinking about how arbitrary it can be i think i was because often people can't uh investigators can't find clear motives and even when there are motives there there was that terrible shooting at florida state in a yoga studio that killed an english major as it happened i i have a colleague who used to teach at Alabama, who's down there and um, wrote a piece that ended up in Best American Essays about that. He's a Shakespeare professor. But just, I think the guy like didn't like women or I don't know, he had a girlfriend that pissed him off or something. But the, you know, the idea of like the way that most of us deal with things that are, are upsetting or disappointing might be to like get drunk or hit a wall or something and, <laughs> Like the idea of going and mowing down a bunch of people unrelated, not that it's acceptable to kill the actual person who disappointed you or who you're angry at, but the idea of just taking an innocent bystander who has no relationship to anything that was going on in your life and killing that person. And often it does seem like it's women and children just um, really. Yeah. So you're right that 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 arbitrariness was what motivated the beginning of the story. Naomi, then the mother Googles coffins for kids. So of course I had to do that too. And it is the absolute like worst. Um, so tell me a little bit about coming up with Brock Honeycutt, the master craftsman. That is based on just me messing around and Googling. And I did see they had what looked like a guy who was in a studio, you know, he's like a woodworker in his studio making these, I think I invented a few of the types of coffins, but some of them I pulled from that actual website. I changed his name because I didn't know if the guy would appreciate me putting it in there, but that that's the joy of Google these days is you can you can dig down pretty deep and and see things rather than having to invent them in your head you just have to look at them and then figure out a way to describe them in the voice of a narrator yeah and i think i i might have happened on the same guy because i forget his i mean it was different enough that like i would never you know but i was looking for it so um i can't remember what his real name is but he pops right up with like the Star Wars themes and the other themes. I just was curious, and this is just a little aside about the names, like the, the killer's name is Glenn Belson. And then you've got, you know, Brock Honeycutt, the master craftsman. Um, how do you come up with your names? I don't really, I'm not really sure. 
definitely when I moved to the South, I became very aware of names because I'm from New York. And I think that there regionally people do have um, names. And I think I wanted to, I, I don't know how I chose them, but I think I, that might've been in the back of my mind. Like there's a dentist in this town whose last name is Turnipseed. Um, I didn't want to make them too comic. Like I thought turnip seed might distract too much from, but a, a lot of comic short stories and novels. I mean, everything from, I guess you're not supposed to talk about Lolita anymore, but the main character is Humbert Humbert. Um, you know, there's a character in um, Dennis Johnson's uh, Jesus's son. It's like the F blank blank K head. Uh, is, is his name. So a lot of times the name of the character signals comic intent, but I didn't want to push that too far. Yeah, I was wondering how you navigated that because you, because Naomi goes all over the place. So, and we're in her head the whole time and she's saying these, you know, like hilarious things. So Emily had two strikes against her, you know, like I mean, not hilarious, but like also just snarky. <laughs> so how did you maintain that? Um, because I would feel like at some point when I was writing the story, am I going too far? Am I, you know, I don't know, pushing it hard enough. It just would be a delicate balance with the subject matter. I guess I've seen a lot of comedians be interviewed. Sarah Silverman's the one that um, comes to mind right away in which they say you kind of have to push it too far and then you can pull it back if it just seems too awful. In, in comedy class, I always show them, there's a video of Joan Rivers making a joke about her husband, Edward, having killed himself. And the audience, there's an audience member who begins to argue with her and say, you shouldn't be joking about that. And it's a really interesting moment. I mean, she sort of says it's my material, which I can't claim because I haven't had, I mean, I've had plenty of, you know, tears myself about Parkland and about Sandy Hook, but I haven't had a close family or friend die um, of gun violence. But so I think I did play around with how far can I push this and then there's a story uh, by Lori Moore called People Like That Are the Only People Here. Um, and she, it's, just, it's a great, it's one of my favorite stories ever. But, um, you know, that's about her, a child having cancer. And I spent some time kind of studying that story and thinking about how she uses third person um, very closely tied to that uh, main character to see what I could do, like what jokes you can make. And I think that in the third person like that, that narrator is a little bit separate from the character. So the narrator can kind of make a joke that maybe the character, you couldn't, I don't think pull it off in first person. It seems too dire or something. Well, and in first person, they'd have to say the things out loud. I mean, it would be harder, you know. I guess you like, could say, I think, but yeah. even that's weird. Yeah, because you'd censor yourself, wouldn't you? I mean, uh -huh. you'd be afraid to share it. I thought it was perfect. Um, so you have this line that a child could die of leukemia had made Naomi an atheist because only a God who is a total shithead could let a kid die of leukemia. 
but then later she doesn't want to rule out the possibility of God after Emily dies. Um, is that true? Or does she just wish she could believe that they would see each other again? Do you think she's like, actually, I think she's just hoping there's a guy. I would just, I don't know why I, I was think curious. She's just wishing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting that she had this friend die and then, you know, that makes her an atheist and she doesn't want to have kids. She was a reluctant parent to begin with. So. Yeah, I think that's kind of devastating. I have a colleague who um, really didn't want to have kids, and then she got convinced, and she had a child, and of course she loves her child, but the child is um, completely nonverbal, uh, autism, I guess, I don't know if that's really on the spectrum, but um, it's, you know, and she's somebody who is deeply immersed in language, so it's just devastating for her. I mean, I don't know that she, I didn't ask her because it's not an appropriate question, but like, do you wish you didn't do this or, but you know, when you only have one shot, uh, you know, I know you have a few kids, so it's really hard if you had that child so that you could have somebody, a companion to talk to for the, re talk with for the rest of your life and the person dies or the person is unable to communicate with you in the way that you might have hoped. I think there's, it's pretty devastating. I think, I don't have kids myself, but. I think it would be, I think it would be really devastating. Um, okay, so this, uh, this is a leap, but I like to make these leaps and then I get to ask the author. So, the, all right, so the gunman wears chain mail and I couldn't help noticing you mentioned General John Stark um, who wrote to his comrades celebrating the Battle of Bennington, but that also reminded me of, Jon Snow, you know, like from Game of Thrones. It's just fascinating because I don't know if you've ever watched Game of Thrones. It's no. <laughs> super, super violent. It's really violent. So then I was like, oh my God, because his name should really be Jon Stark. And he wears, you know, like he's like a warrior oh. in the show. And then I started thinking about violence in society and blah, 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 blah. But Anyway, okay, so since it's not clearly any, you know, connection to that, I'm glad I cleared it up, though, because I bet a lot of people are like, oh, that it must be Jon Snow. <laughs> well, if it fits, sure. It's I'm weird. probably the only one in America who hasn't read um, Harry Potter or watched Game of Thrones, so. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> yes. You know, I just have to say, Game of Thrones start it starts out really violent but there's a lot of character development that's really interesting but anyway okay so tell me a little bit about general john stark then and how he made it into the story i gotta be honest with you kelly maybe it's covid or something but i have no memory <laughs> it's okay I'm sure i was noodling around on the internet and and found it but well he has that he's the one who um wrote that didn't he write live free or die or, oh yes that's where yeah okay. yeah that must have i think i was researching quakers at that point because there's a reference to quakers that's right I think it came up you know how you you google one thing and pretty soon you're down a rabbit hole mm -hmm. so i think that's what happened okay because yeah that's where she mentions like oh maybe i should maybe i'm being lazy being an atheist maybe i should be a quaker yes and, all right so these are some of the really funny lines i loved okay his enemies were kids who still wet their beds. One of the Eleanors looks like she's taken about nine different sedatives. 
the Inquisition, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, the Nixon presidency, slim pickings in the cheerfulness department. Um, and then after, so then you, you have like all that gallows humor. And then there's a paragraph that just states it, that Naomi thought about killing herself. So underneath it all, she's like, you know, maybe I'm just gonna drive off a cliff. And that felt really real to me as a parent in that situation. Did that, I mean, was that a leap for you to get to that moment where she says that, or did that just come naturally? Uh, I think one of the details in the story that um, is drawn from my life, I had, I had a cousin and a best friend who weirdly both died of leukemia within three years of each other. And I watched those parents, um, particularly at my cousin's funeral, I, I watched my uncle who I just thought of as such a mild mannered, uh, my fam my father's family is English. So they're very sort of, um, contained, unlike the Jewish side of my family, which is much more emotive. And I just thought, saw him completely go to pieces when they brought her, um, coffin in. And I was a very, you know, I was young, I was like 13. And I'd never experienced the death of an old person before. This was my first experience of death. And I thought, because I didn't know, I couldn't really process that he was feeling like that because it was his child. I just was reading it as death. I thought, oh, this is what every death is going to be like forevermore. And, you know, it was sort of very, very difficult early part of my life. And then, you know, then when the friend died three years later, again, it was the same disease the same death of a young girl. And again, I watched the parents, they, it was a divorced couple and the, guy, the father was remarried. And I just watched the two parents kind of separately. They didn't even really have, you know, they couldn't really lean on each other because it'd been an acrimonious divorce. And I just thought, this, is, this has got to be the worst thing. And my mother had said to me, it is, people, she said to me, people have told me this is the worst thing. They would rather die themselves than watch the child die. So I think that was very much on my mind that I think that's an option for, you know, people think this is too painful. I could have an out. I agree. I agree. I think I, I've heard that from people who've lost kids that, you know, like hopefully they have another kid because that will, that they will be incentivized to live, you know, uh, and otherwise they go and have another, if they're young enough, they'll, they'll actually, you know, get pregnant and do it again. And I think that's I a real act of courage. I agree. I mean, that is hard for me to understand. Um, just having that much chutzpah to do it again and, but good for them. Cause it probably mm -hmm. does, you know, give them something to live for. Um, okay, so she asks um, her husband, Rick, if he would be all right a little while, and he says for a vacation, and mm -hmm. she responds sort of more like a retreat. Um, and then there's another section that knocked me flat. She calls to get a coffin, and the woman asks when she needs it. No, um, and then no, Naomi says, no rush. We were part of that school massacre. And the woman says, which one? I mean, and if that doesn't say it all, I don't know what does i mean it was just like that's the world we're living in it was just unbelievable i think this is a really interesting part about 
story writing that like, you know, when you're in the hands of like a master storyteller, because the details in Cracker Barrel about the game and the golf, you know, tease, I thought that was so heartbreaking. And it's so weird that contrast because Cracker Barrel strikes me as so American, you know, (laughs) isn't that what we all do? We stop at Cracker Barrel and we play the games. (laughs) We, We shop in that if it doesn't matter like who you are, you end up in that little store looking at the marbles. And she has that moment where she wants to, to crack a jar full of gumballs against her skull. So I just thought that was a brilliant scene. How did that come to you? I mean, did you actually, how did you map out that drive, I guess, down to, or how? when did you know she would go down to Virginia? I am. Um... One of my big problems as a story writer is I'm not good at plot. I can't move things forward. That's just always been when I was uh, a young woman and I was learning how to write stories, I kept having flashbacks. And one of my teachers said, you can't do infinite regress. You can't just like have the character remember this, which reminds her of this, which reminds her of this. And so I got rid of that habit. But I just really struggled and I'd never written a road trip story before, I don't think. And I thought, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this could be because I really wanted to play around with voice and details. And that was the stuff that interested me. And it didn't interest me at all to have her whatever she was going to do. So I just one day thought, well, if I make her have a road trip and I thought, well, why is she on a road trip? And then this thing came to me about going to buy a coffin and then just by I thought where is um, NRA headquarters and then I started reading about it and they actually do have a shooting range and then you could go and look at they had a few pictures of it so that just opened things wide up for me I thought this this is the kind of thing that you do if you're crazed with grief you're sort of driving around you know trying to I don't know not be sitting still and and just dying of grief. So, and then I thought, well, she can have, try to have some retribution. I don't know what she's, you know, I didn't know what she was gonna do in there, but I thought I'll just send her there and see what happens. So then there's the part where the guy, the guy says, um, he's shooting, well, the two names are Sylph and Furry, which I loved. <laughs> <laughs> and of course she's in high heels. Like I just, it's just perfect. And that um, is actually, there was a female representative of the NRA. This is, this is during the Trump administration when the NRA was being investigated for somebody. She's the spokesperson and she wears incredibly high heels. So I kind of modeled that person on her. I remember her, but she had black hair, didn't she? Mm-hmm. You gave this, yeah. Um, okay, so then, um, and Furry says he's aiming at Obama, which is not... Which I'd never heard Obama before. I'd heard it's like, like a thing I found on some right wing website that they would call him Obama. Obama, <laughs> that is it's ridiculous. Anyway, so then she blurts out, "I voted for Obama twice." To which he says, "And this has happened to me so many times on various topics." The person who's disagreeing with me goes, "Oh, sorry," and then um, and she knows, of course, that he's not saying sorry. He's sorry about Obama, but sorry, like you're such a loser and you've got this, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're so messed up. <laughs> um, and then 
my favorite line comes next. She felt herself riding over the lip of sanity. <laughs> I just think that's so perfect. But um, okay, so then she comes to this conclusion. I really wanted to talk about the ending. Um, they weren't bad people, these gun lovers, these rifle associators, these keepers and bearers of arms. They had just confused the importance of one kind of arms for another. I love that. And then in the end, they suggest you get that she's, they suggest she gets a baby Glock and, um, and they aren't joking. Like they really feel like, okay, well now you need to arm yourself. Um, so how did you come to that moment? I had that my favorite little passage in the, I like, I like the moments that the story gets to kind of be an essay and the the little moment with the bearers of arms had you know the wrong kind of arms i was thinking about how that's weird that arms are you know the way that you describe guns but also um what you use to embrace somebody and all all the different kinds of things that arms can do so i put that in there and then um weirdly the story got accepted by the atlantic first and um then they so they said i think they accepted it maybe in like june of whatever year this was and then come i don't know it was coming around to my birthday february they hadn't printed it yet and so i thought i'm gonna call before my birthday because i don't want them i want this settled like what i i assume that they were going to print it but they can tell me because i was having a big it was a big number birthday party for me so um when I called, they gave me the runaround and then apparently Jeffrey Goldberg had become the new editor and he um, nixed the story. But before they nixed the story, the editor, Mike Curtis, had um, gotten in touch with me and said that he didn't like that little passage about the arms and he wanted me to remove it. And I was really resistant to that idea. I felt like for me, the story comes to a kind of crescendo there. and. And then I there's totally little, agree. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I just couldn't go there. But I guess we hadn't entirely worked that out. Like the editor was supposed to the copy or whoever editor, I don't know, was supposed to call me. But in any case, they nixed it. And I was very upset with them. And I gave them a piece of my mind. And um, they sent me like a thousand dollars to make me feel better, I guess. And then after that, that Kenyon Review picked it up, which was fine. It was a great place for it. But I had, you know, I'd kind of gotten my hopes up for a magazine that gets sold and I hadn't, I'd had a story like back in 2000. So this was like 20 years later, I was going to get to be in a magazine that gets sold at the airport. So I, I felt like, well, good, because the Kenyan Review people, of course, love that section. And I don't think it would have been the story I wanted it to be if it wasn't in there. It feels so spot on. And it feels like also... I had that sense of helplessness that everybody has now uh, because of the great divide between people where you have this feeling like anything could happen. A kid could get shot and people are still going to view it from their own corner. Like nothing is going to change this. And I feel that way about so many different things. So is that what was going through your head? Like you know, nothing would change them. Of course, they're not going to start like, oh my God, we're wrong. We're going to quit the NRA, <laughs> you know, like closing up shop. Yeah. And I think, but they still do 
they think that they they feel empathy toward her. So I didn't want them to be monsters and they really want to help her. And they think that the way they're going to help her is get like a small gun that she can handle well. So, you know, that, that is emblematic, I think of what you're talking about. Like there are times when people think that they're helping me, but, and, and I'm sure, you know, if I'm hassling somebody about getting vaccinated, they they probably think oh she's so well-meaning but she's out of her mind and i'm thinking the same thing so uh, that's a real impasse i mean i think that's i think there are being a lot of great stories and novels and you know everything coming out of this period people trying to work through that because i feel like that's a unique feature i mean i haven't been alive for that long but i mean i haven't seen this before where people just like never move an inch they just stay in their corner so i thought the story is fantastic for that is there anything i um didn't cover that you thought oh she's definitely going to talk about this or i want to discuss this aspect of the story i guess um i had some res i was going to ask you something which was i had some reservations about putting that story first in the collection but I work with my editor and we were sort of not quite sure. I, there was some hesitancy about having like one of the stories that has a lot of, because sex is always more dangerous than violence in this country. So not to start with a story that had sex in it, um, but then to start like kind of start with a bang. Um, but I had some reservations about doing that just because there is a kind of relentlessness about that story. And I wondered, um, if you as a reader found it relentless or if you think other people do. Not at all. I had never seen a story from that point of view. And the fact that she was so humorous, now that you mentioned Lori, Lori Moore, I can definitely see like a connection to that kind of, I would say gallows humor. I felt like it was, it heightened your emotion so much starting out in the collection, but then you got to shift gears. I always like I don't know about you, but I like in a collection where I'm like, okay, we're going to go in a, in a completely different direction on the next story. And I'm going to get, I'm just going to have another experience here, which is completely unrelated. I like that better than if every story seems exactly the same. So I didn't, it didn't bother me at all. What did you hear from other readers? I don't really know. It felt like the collection came out and I was about to go around and do do a bunch of readings and go to AWP. And of course, right for me, right before AWP uh, was when we decided we weren't going to do that and then went into quarantine. So I haven't had a lot of interaction with people. I mean, except like, I don't know, some of my friends, but even my like my dad, I think it, he couldn't really handle the sex stuff. <laughs> he could handle the, this one, but not the sex. <laughs> yeah, he didn't really talk to me that much. He said the one thing he said was, I think it's about the second story, the story called Ticks. Oh, yeah. He said, like, you didn't sleep with your, because I do have three stepbrothers. Right. Your stepbrothers. I was <laughs> like, no, I just, you know, these are, this is what people do in their brains when they're writers. They come up with what ifs. But no, absolutely not. I did not sleep with my stepbrother. <laughs> right. I think he might have stopped after that. He felt like that was enough. 
Well, that's so interesting because I think that fiction confuses family members because you do use a lot of aspects from your life and, um, you know, and then you veer off in another direction and they're like, wait, that part was true. So this must be, <laughs> they just don't get it. I've had that happen a lot. Yeah. So, well, um, thank you. What are you working on now? Well, I've kind of been out of it for a little while. So I've just been keeping a notebook. So I'm trying to, I actually signed up for a little, um, they send you prompts every week and you have to submit and then they, they don't necessarily read them, but they just say, great, good job for submitting. Here's some more prompt in a, in an attempt to start a bunch of things. Cause I have been writing a novel about, I've written about 40 pages before the pandemic began. And just for me, it was, it, this was very psychological. It wasn't, wasn't taxing. I wasn't, you know, a nurse but it was just psychologically taxing. And I found really all I could do was write down how bizarre everything was. I just wrote down tons of details and news stories and hopefully someday I can make some kind of sense of it, but. Yeah, I had a similar experience, but I was talking to Susan Parabu, you know, mm -hmm. two weeks ago right. and yes. yeah. And she said um, that she wrote a ton. And I was like, oh, good for you. <laughs> I, I couldn't do anything at all. So I, no, get it. I guess it depends on your temperament or something. But mm -hmm. I, you know, I just thought my brother-in-law was a doctor in New York. So that was the beginning of this was March and April. And I was just terrified he was going to die. And he would call us every day and tell us what he was seeing. So it was a real like, and he was talking about a field hospital. I just don't know how people could have written in the middle of that. It's just. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. Well, thank you so much, Wendy. This has been so great. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it.